Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. If you enjoy this program, come on over and join us at the World of Warbirds Patreon. There's plenty of free stuff there, including all the images to accompany the episodes, so you can see what I'm talking about. If you want to commit to the relationship, there are advantages to being a patron of the podcast, such as getting the episodes a week earlier and getting bonus episodes, and you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to contribute to the podcast. If you are presently listening to this through Patreon, well, then thank you for your support. And now on to today's show. So in part one, we designed, tested, prototyped, competed, and crawled through a B-17. Now it is time to take it to war. Operational History The B-17 began fighting even before the USA was in the war. The RAF acquired 20 C versions, which they called Fortress Ones. The RAF tried them out on daylight raids and found them lacking, needing improved defenses, a bigger bomb load, and a more accurate way of aiming. The RAF transferred their fortresses to Coastal Command and also used them for gathering weather information. Some RAF fortresses actually went out on night bombing missions with the 100 Group. These carried a radio system known as Airborne Cigar, or ABC. During the night raids, German-speaking radio operators would ride along, listening, and then issuing confusing instructions to the German night fighters directing them away from the bomber stream, or jamming them with noise. I guess the noise sounded like bagpipes, because the German pilots referred to ABC as Dudelsack, which I understand is the German word for bagpipes. As a former Highlander with the Black Watch, I can say that I love the word Dudelsack almost as much as I liked marching behind the pipes. If you've heard my review of the book A Thousand Shall Fall, the author, Murray Pedden, flew these type of cigar missions with the RAF Fortress. As anyone who has seen the movies Tora, Tora, Tora or Pearl Harbor can attest, the USAAF's B-17s were involved from the very beginning of the American War, and the results were not that auspicious to start. Half of the B-17s in the Philippines were destroyed in the initial attack, as were two of the twelve that arrived in Hawaii in the middle of the raid on Pearl and the other facilities. B-17s did serve in the Pacific, but to use a real bird analogy, it wasn't its natural habitat. Although they were tough and flew high enough to be quite resistant to Japanese fighter attack, they were not that effective in trying to hit commercial shipping or even naval craft. At their peak, there were about 168 B-17s in the theater, but decisions were made that as B-24s and B-29s would be migrating into the area, the B-17s would instead be heading to Europe. The leftover B-17s in the Pacific were used for transport, airdropping supplies to commandos, and search and rescue, including the famous Dumbo B-17s. These were modified to carry a lifeboat under the bomb bay. 
These lifeboats were equipped with motor, fuel, water, food. They must have seemed like angels coming from the skies to the downed airmen and were affectionately named after the Disney flying elephant Dumbo. Dumbos were so successful that eventually all search and rescue aircraft of this type came to be known as Dumbos and the B-17 Dumbos served until the 1950s. But, as I said before, the natural habitat of the B-17 was the skies above Europe. And the activities of this bird mainly were wrecking German industry and tangling with the Luftwaffe. To really understand what they were doing, you should listen to my episode called Big Bombers, which takes a deep dive into the intentions of the USAAF's Bomber Mafia and RAF's Bomber Command. In July 1942, the first B-17 unit arrived in England, and only one short month later, a raid was flown against a marshalling yard in Rouen, in France. Did you know that Paul Tibbets led that attack? I think it's pretty fitting that he flew the very first USAAF bomber mission over Europe, and then went on to fly one of the very last bomber missions over Japan, when he flew the Enola Gay to Hiroshima. Increasing numbers of B-17s were arriving, and in January 1943, the idea of the combined bomber offensive was developed by the Allies. The RAF would strike at night, while the USAAF would hit during the day. This round-the-clock bombing would never allow the Luftwaffe a rest. Pre-war ideas that the bomber would always get through were to need a vast adjustment during the offensive. Early raids were increasingly shredded by Luftwaffe fighters, and so the USAAF was forced to come up with novel ways of organizing its B-17s and B-24s into defensive formations that would better maximize the defensive coverage of their 50 caliber machine guns. So how did these formations or combat boxes work? Well, ever since people have been fighting, they've been arranging themselves in shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder lines to face the enemy. Whether it was the Roman legionary with his pila and gladius, the thin red line of the British redcoats, or the World War I firing line. Of course, up in the air, one could work in three dimensions and stack and stagger the lines to create basically a wall of guns. There was plenty of experimentation that occurred, and many different formations were devised to do different things. Sometimes they were even organized to be stacked towards the sun so that an attacking enemy would have to squint to see his target. I'm not going to get into all the combinations and permutations, but mainly the idea was to have as many machine guns as possible pointing in the right direction in order to create a defensive wall of fire. No matter what formation was decided on, it had to be formed up before heading into battle. This whole process is one that puts me in awe of these pilots. The weather over England was often awful, and these hundreds of planes would be popping up here and there through the clouds, all having to get organized into their formations and not, mainly, slamming into each other. This was to be done in radio silence, as any chatter would tip off the enemy that something was happening. 
With all the planes looking roughly the same, the concept of the assembly ship was devised. Although the need for the assembly ship was serious, the look of these ships is kind of playful. Like the painting of these planes was turned over to elementary school kids. They were colored in garish patterns and polka dots with extra lights and flares to draw attention to themselves. And then the planes would form up on them before heading into battle. The darker name for the assembly ship was the Judas Goat, which is a goat trained to lead its buddies into the slaughterhouse before being spared itself. To defeat the formations of B-17s, the Luftwaffe employed many tactics. To try to avoid a long exposure to the massed 50s of the formations, the Luftwaffe began attacking head-on, which meant a shorter closing time to be exposed to the guns, but also a much shorter firing window. To increase the killing power doled out by these fighters during the short time that they would have, more cannon were added in order to fling more explosive cannon shells out in that short window of time. Not many hits with these explosive shells were needed. Four or five would do. As the formations themselves were part of the defense, attempts were made to try to break up the combat boxes and thus weaken the defense. To do this, twin-engined Zerstörer aircraft would fling rockets or mortars into the groups of B-17s. In this step-by-step -step arms race, the Allied long-range escorts then arrived on the scene to fight off the fighters and Zerstörers, ultimately the little friends being able to escort the big friends all the way to targets and back. The last stages of the arms race were the ME-262 jets and the other desperate Luftwaffe measures such as the ME-163 rocket glider, but by then it was like holding back a tidal wave with a sponge. The B-17s were called upon to wreck whatever the planners thought would shorten the war. If you recall from the Big Bombers episode, the hope had been that the B-17 and her sisters would be able to win the war all by themselves. But that was overly ambitious. In the end, they became just another instrument in the orchestra to destroy the enemy. They went after industry and factories, including the famous ball-bearing raids. They hit U-boat pens and warehouses. They went after the enemy's oil production. They focused on destroying the Luftwaffe by hitting aircraft factories and, frankly, putting themselves out there as a bait to force German fighters up and into battle of attrition that they just couldn't match. They wrecked the transportation system, hitting marshalling yards and bridges. Finally, although the Air Force leaders had always resisted having their machines used for tactical use, they were used to soften up D-Day beaches and as carpet-bombing aerial barrages for Operations Goodwood and Cobra. In 1944, it was noticed that there were some targets that were just resistant to the usual type bombing. These were hardened structures such as U-boat pens, which had many meters of protective concrete. The British tackled the problem with their earthquake-generating tallboys and Grand Slam bombs. The Americans came up with Operation Aphrodite. Twenty-five high-time, war-weary fortresses, usually B-17Fs, 
were taken off operations and modified into radio-controlled flying bombs with the new designation of BQ-7s. These old bombers were stripped of everything that wasn't necessary, such as armor, guns, bomb racks, radio sets, etc., lightening them by about 12,000 pounds, which was then replaced by up to 9 tons of Torpex explosive. In the cockpit, a radio control system was installed known as Double Azon. Azon itself was a system for guiding a bomb once it had left the bomb bay. It could only control right and left steering, and so was called azimuth only, or Azon. The double Azon had two cameras installed, one pointing at the flight controls and the other looking out the nose. Because the double Azon system wasn't capable of controlling the fortress from takeoff, two poor unfortunate bums had to climb in and take off this flying bomb before arming the explosives and handing the control of it over to the crew in a mothership, which was another B-17 known as a CQ-4. Then the takeoff crew would bail out of the airplane while it was over friendly territory. To make it easier for the takeoff crew to get out, the roof of the cockpit was removed. So they got to take off in an open cockpit like in the early days of aviation of yore. Once the takeoff crew was out, the crew in the mothership would guide the flying bomb by looking at TV screens and flying it via joystick controllers. Once the conversion work and training had been done, the unit moved their flying robot bombs and motherships to a small satellite airfield at First Field, 25 miles from Woodbridge, which was a very isolated spot that was well away from any civilian areas. Seems like a good idea when dealing with untested robot flying bombs. The precautions were justified on the very first mission on August 4, 1944. The team was trying to hit V-1 sites in the Pas de Calais in France, and they departed their home field with two motherships and two drones. When drone number one got to altitude, the first crewman bailed out. Before the second pilot was able to get out, the drone went haywire and crashed near the coastal village of Orford. It destroyed two acres of trees and I guess vaporized the other crewman as his body was never found. Not a very auspicious start to the project. As for the second drone, its takeoff crew got out and the mothership crew took over and guided it successfully to Pas de Calais. It nearly made it but flew into cloud just before the target site and missed its target by 500 feet. Mission number two at least didn't kill any friendlies. One drone was shot down by German flak, and again, the second missed its target by 500 yards. Mission three had both drones go out of control after the takeoff crews jumped. One dropped into the sea, but the other one circled the city of Ipswich like the angel of death for a while before also heading out to sea and blowing up. After this, the control system was changed from Azon to something called Castor. The first mission with Castor worked perfectly. No, I'm kidding. It was also terrible. Firstly, one of the drone pilot's parachutes didn't open when he bailed out and he died. 
The drone made it all the way to the target, but crashed 100 yards short of the target. The next robot crashed because of a problem with the television screen, and the one after that also malfunctioned and ditched at sea. At some point it was decided that this weapon was more dangerous to its operators than to the enemy, and it was cancelled. The U.S. Navy had their own version of the experiment called Anvil, which used the naval version of the B-24 called the PBY-4. It wasn't any more successful, and one of the drones blew up, killing the takeoff pilots. One of them, who just happened to be Lieutenant Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., brother of the future president. In the last episode of the series, we will join a typical B-17 crew and go out on a tour of combat. Thanks to all who support the podcast through Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. You can also check out photos of what we've been talking about on the Patreon page. These are available to all, and please check out the kit shop. You don't even have to buy anything. Just by clicking on the link, you help out the podcast. Until next time.